Good morning again. I, di- I didn't give a proper introduction earlier on, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt. I, uh, I work in this church as uh, what's called the Church Life Pastor. I'm trying to figure out still what that means, but um, I think it means I do a lot of the admin and a lot of the organisational stuff, and not much of this at the moment. Uh, Dave is normally up here preaching, but as Anne said earlier on, he's uh, in a church over in Hook today, so I have the privilege, really, of sharing God's Word with you this morning. So, um, last week we started a brand new sermon series entitled Words from the Edge of the World, and that's all about looking at the last words of Jesus before his death um, on the cross. And, And Dave spoke last week on the words, Father, forgive them. And this week we're going to be turning to the book of John in a moment, and we're going to be focused on focusing on some different words, I am thirsty, the words that Jesus says on the cross. So if you have a Bible, we are going to turn to the book of John, and we're going to look at chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. So John 19, verses 28 to 30. As you can see, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words are on the screen if you can read those. A bit small, but that's my fault. So let's read the, uh, the passage here. Later, knowing that everything had been now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's just take some time to pray. Lord, we just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open scripture and that we can get to know you better. We pray, Lord, that this morning we will have the ears and the hearts and the minds to listen to what you have to say to us, to take action on what we hear. In the name of Jesus, amen. So although we're focusing on the book of John today, as you can see, um, this is uh, a story that that is echoed across all four of the Gospels. So we we read something like this, not exactly the same, but something across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course John, what we're looking at today. And the reason why I point that out is because I think that's fairly interesting, because to me, when you first look at the words, I am thirsty, it doesn't really seem that big of a deal. It's just like, okay, fine, I'm thirsty. What, What do I read into that? But it it becomes clear that the authors of the gospel felt that it was something that was really important to put across. So that means for us that it must be important. And so we're going to try and sort of unpack that today and try and apply that to our lives. So let's start by looking at verse 28. We read that Jesus said, I am thirsty so that scripture could be fulfilled. So our first point is that scripture could be fulfilled. And the um, scripture that John is talking about in this gospel is widely recognised to be in the Psalms, and Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So firstly, the very fact that Jesus refers to himself here as I am thirsty reminds us of the divinity of Jesus. Because if we look back at the Old Testament and we look at the book of Exodus, uh, specifically chapter 3, where God is talking to Moses at the burning bush, um, we read the following. 
Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, I am in Hebrew is translated into Yahweh. Some of you might know that. We sing a song in this church sometimes, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, O Lord. And it's one of the words for God that is is one of the holiest names for God, really. So it reminds us of the divinity of Jesus, essentially, here. But also, the fact that God in Exodus calls himself, I am Yahweh, is a name, it's personal. You know, we all have names because it's a personal thing to us. And then we can say, okay, our God wants to be related to in a personal way. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. He is God, but he is also um, wants a personal relationship. So the words I am in that phrase remind us of the, the holiness of Jesus on the cross, the fact that Jesus is God. However, in that same sentence, I am thirsty, we're reminded of um, his humanity. Jesus was God, but he was also fully human. He had emotions, he felt pain, he got hungry, and as we read here, he got thirsty. Yet having endured so much human suffering to this point, such pain, such shame, he continued to be obedient to his father. And we find that's sometimes sort of an unwitting thing that we might play our role in God's plan. We don't really know that we're doing it sometimes. But the thing here is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what was coming, and he still did it for us. He was obedient to his Father's wishes to the very end, even though he knew where it would lead. He fulfilled Scripture. And I believe that's a real big challenge to us. It certainly is to me. It might be to you. Are we living obedient lives for Jesus? Because if we're here today because we know God, we're a Christian, we are walking with Jesus at the moment, you will therefore undoubtedly be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise to us. And the thing is with the Holy Spirit, it's not a benevolent thing. It gives us nudges from time to time, doesn't it? It makes us feel certain ways. We might call it a conscience sometimes. We might feel that it's a feeling or an awareness. But nevertheless, we know it's some sort of nudge, a prompting from God. We might get that same nudge if we're, we're reading our Bibles and turning to Scripture, or we're having a conversation with a Christian friend, or if we're just praying in the privacy of our own homes. The thing is, it doesn't really matter how we get those nudges, because we're all different. The, what matters is that we actually take notice of those nudges and do something about them, that we're obedient, that we don't just bury them deep inside and then try to push them down and forget them. So that's really important. We need to be obedient because the reality is Jesus was obedient to the very end. Are we being obedient ourselves? So the first point is scripture could be fulfilled and that leads to us looking at Jesus' obedience to his father and are we being obedient to the calls that we're getting over our lives, whatever that might be, um, however that might be prompted in our lives. But point two is that Jesus wants to give us his very best. So if we continue looking through our passage and we turn to uh, verse 29, we read that the sponge was soaked with wine vinegar and then offered to Jesus. 
Um, and the thing is, wine vinegar, or, or sour wine, I think as it was often referred to in those days, uh, wasn't a nice drink. I mean, it doesn't sound nice, does it, really? But it, it, it wasn't. Um, it was the sort of drink that was offered to uh, the sort of lowest-ranking soldiers in the Roman army. It would have been offered to criminals and to the very poor, but it was certainly not something that the Jewish people would have ever drunk, or certainly anyone else for that matter. And even the word vinegar, if you turn to the Old Testament and the Psalms, it's it sort of almost interpreted as the word poison. And that's a massive contrast to if we turn earlier on in the book of John and we go back to chapter 2, almost at the beginning of, of the book of John, and we see that Jesus comes to the wedding in Cana, doesn't he? And we know, I'm sure, this story very well, that the, the wedding he arrived at, they'd run out of wine. That was a horrendous thing in those days. It'd be a pretty bad thing today, really, I think, at a wedding to run out of wine. But in those days, it was awful, and the groom would have been massively shamed for that. And Jesus steps in, and he saves the day. He takes these six large jars of water, and he turns it into the best Bordeaux that anyone's ever tasted, the best wine anyone's ever tasted. And that just reminds us of the goodness of God and his desire to bless his children, even though we're in no way worthy. You see, he gave the best for us. In that situation, he gave the best wine. He didn't hold back. But on the cross, in his suffering, in his hour of need, what do we give to Jesus? What does humankind give to Jesus? But our worst. And although we might and indeed should try to give our God our very best in our worship and in our praise and living our lives the way that we know that we should, the reality is we will never offer up the kind of praise and honour and worship to God that he truly deserves. We can't even come close. But nevertheless, through his grace, he showers us with his best regardless. His everlasting peace and his joy and his love. And this isn't an isolated incident. We see this sort of stuff throughout scripture, but even just two chapters later in the book of John, chapter 4, we, um, we see that Jesus stops and starts talking to this Samaritan woman. You know, almost the enemies of, of the Jews. Jesus stops and starts talking to her, and we find out that this lady has got a bit of a niffy past, um, certainly a woman that the Jews wouldn't ordinarily have associated with or certainly talked to. But Jesus goes up to her, strikes up a conversation, and spends time with her. And he says this, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, and I think it's, it's fair to say that the people surrounding Jesus, his disciples, would have expected Jesus to have probably condemned this woman. As I said earlier on, she was a Samaritan woman. That wasn't necessarily a good thing in those days. Uh, the fact that she was Samaritan and a woman, really, the Jews didn't really associate with those uh, people. Um, but she had five previous husbands, we find out. The person that she's living with now, the man she's living with now, isn't even her husband. Yet Jesus offers her his best. She was in no way worthy, but he offers her his living water, his eternal living water, freely. So whatever situation we might find ourselves in, wherever we think, whether we're worthy, Jesus says, look, I want to give you my best. 
You are worthy to me. I want to give you my very best. If we move on to point three, thirsty for God. Um, And I don't know about you here, but when I hear of the word thirst, I suppose your natural reaction is to go to the, the word thirst in the sense of needing a drink. But we can thirst for other stuff, can't we? We can thirst for for knowledge, it's often said, or thirst for life. But the thing is, Jesus is saying to thirst for something even deeper than that. He's saying to thirst for himself, to thirst for God. Because he knows that we as human beings will never truly be satisfied until we have that relationship with God. Because that's the way he created us. If we don't have this, we just find that something is missing inside of us. Something that nothing else can fulfill. We might try with money or success or other relationships, but we know that that will never work. Only God can fill that void. Thirsting for water is also very important. It's an important natural reaction because if we, if we don't, then it impacts upon our health. We don't just want water, do we? I mean, it's nice. We like having a drink of water, but at the same time, that's not the main thing. We need water to survive. If we don't have enough fluids, we will die pretty quickly. And I believe there is no coincidence here, of course, that Jesus refers to himself and the Father in this sense, thirsting or drinking water. Jesus isn't an optional extra, but he is something that we need if we want to live full lives in this life, but of course full lives into eternity as well. So, does that mean that once we've accepted Jesus, if we make that decision to accept Jesus as our saviour, the job is done, his living water, as we read, will never end, it will spring up within us for the rest of our lives, regardless of what we do? Well, the great news that we know is that once we've accepted Jesus into our lives, he will never leave us nor forsake us. We read that in scripture, so that's the good news. However, for our relationship with Jesus to grow and to flourish we need to invest, just as we would with any other relationship that we have in in this world. Um, I hope they don't mind me saying this. Uh, Apologies if you do, because I'm going to say it anyway. Um, But two weeks ago, we had fantastic news here. Um, Our friends in this church, two of them, Laura and Russell, got engaged. Woohoo! That's the sort of reaction that we got at the time, I think. Yeah. So I've got to be careful here, because Russell's on the sound desk. He, just, he could just mute my mic or something in a minute, but it, it's good stuff. But that was really great, and we did the same then. We cheered. We were really, really happy for them, because they're lovely people, and it's just so nice to see them together. Now, for them to get to that stage, however, they have had to invest in their relationship with one another, haven't they? They've had to invest um, in, in the time they've spent to each other. They're smirking now, have they? <laughs> Uh, they've invested in the time they spent with one another. They've, they've got to know each other's perhaps family and friends. That takes investment. Sometimes easier, sometimes harder. I don't know. Um, and they've invested in, uh, you know, getting to know each other's likes and dislikes, all sorts of things. But the thing is, it doesn't end there, I'm afraid, guys. <laughs> You're going to continue to do this for the rest of your lives. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't stop there. On their wedding day, they're not going to suddenly say, well, that's it now, we're done. We're not going to speak to each other, we're not going to get to know each other anymore because I think, I think we're sorted. No, they are going to spend the rest of their lives, the rest of their marriage, getting to know each other more intimately as time passes. And because of that, they will grow together, they will be stronger 
they will have that deeper, more intimate relationship as a result. And it's amazing. And that's the same as it is with God. The church is the bride of Christ. Again, we read that in scripture, don't we? But in a way, we then say, well, if we're a Christian, we are wed to Jesus. But just like Laura and Russell in our example, we don't stop at that point. We want to spend time with him. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Not because it's an obligation, uh, or it's something that we feel that we should do out of guilt, but because we love him. We love Jesus, and we know that he loves us. Why wouldn't we want to spend time with him? Why wouldn't we want to delve into the scriptures to know more about him? Why wouldn't we want to pray more, worship more? It's a privilege. So we want to be thirsty for God, have a real thirst for God. But finally, we want to have a healthy spiritual life. Um, I just thought I'd share a sort of personal story with you here. Um, about five years ago, five, six years ago, I think it was, um, one evening I sort of came down with a really crippling pain in my side and my back, and it was absolutely excruciating. And eventually I was sort of rushed to hospital, and after spending a couple of uh, hours in A&E, I was told that the problem was that I had kidney stones. And I just couldn't comprehend how these tiny, tiny little things could cause such a huge amount of pain. And uh, I've been told since that um, kidney stones apparently are, are worse pain than childbirth. So, so I just know what you're going through, ladies. I mean, I mean, it was a man that told me that, but you know. <laughs> However, the main reason apparently for kidney stones, I might be corrected here, but I was told by the consultant that I saw, is that it's usually a build-up of calcium because you're not drinking enough. You're not drinking enough fluids throughout the day. You're not drinking regularly enough because essentially it washes these minerals or whatever through your body so that they don't build up. I just wasn't looking after myself in that way. So my physical health had been impacted because I wasn't drinking enough on a regular basis. And in the same way, our spiritual lives can be harmed if we're not thirsting for Jesus regularly, if we're not drinking of his word or praying or whatever it is on a regular basis. Our spiritual life, even though we have in our lives, is going to go down. So when we're thirsty, we don't just take little sips, do we? If we've, I don't know, we've done some work in the garden or whatever it is you do to, to exercise um, and it's a hot day, and you get really, really thirsty, you're really parched, then you don't just go inside and get a little glass of water and take a tiny little sip, do you? You sort of neck it. You get the bottle, and you just go for it and gulp it down. And I just think, if we applied that in a spiritual sense, what would that look like to us? What a picture that would be of our church, of our, our people here, if we really, really thirsted for Jesus, if we just couldn't get enough of him, if we got excited about going to prayer meetings or communion services that's on this evening, come along, if we got uh, excited about going to our weekly life groups or just going into our privacy of a room at home and praying to our Father. When we think about the early church, if we read the Gospels and the Book of Acts and, and we look at the early church and compare that to our view of church now, the two just seem worlds apart. The early church was about a community of believers living out their faith every single day of the week together. 
It was about spurring each other on, devoting themselves to prayer, devoting themselves to the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, living out that faith and taking action. It wasn't something that they did, it was who they were. It was a true life change for them. Yet somehow, over the past 2,000 years, we seem to have condensed and reduced that down to attending a church service one hour a week on a Sunday. It's a bit of a difference, isn't it? And the truth is, we've probably become comfortable, but the thing is, comfort can be dangerous. Um, I'm sorry to quote this, because I know it's quoted all the time lately, but The Greatest Showman, um, it's, it's, it's a great film, isn't it? I know everyone loves it as well. But one of my favourite lines in that film, The Greatest Showman, is when P.T. Barnum, the main character, says that comfort is the enemy of progress. And it's so true. If we are comfortable where we are, if we're comfortable in our faith, we're never going to move forward. So we need to get a real thirst for Jesus. We need to step out of our comfort zones and be like those early Christians, devoted to Jesus in every way. Because that's the church that I really believe God is calling us to be. Finally, it is not just for us personally. Thirsting and being filled is not just for us personally. Jesus refers to rivers of living water in the book of John, again, in uh, chapter 738. Or as we read earlier on, a spring of water in John 4.14. And the thing is, rivers and springs have something in common. They have a constant flow of water, don't they? They keep going. And if we're to receive this living water, not only do we want to be filled... But as we saw with the children's talk earlier on, we want to be overfilled. We want his spirit to overflow into everything and everyone that we touch. The thing is, if we don't let the Holy Spirit flow from us, out from us, if there is no outlet, we will become stagnant in our faith. Um, some of you may again know this, and they're probably more scientific than I am, but the Dead Sea apparently is so called due to the extremely high salt content. And it means that it's very difficult for life to exist in those waters. And the main reason for that high salt content is that water flows into the lake, because it's actually a lake rather than the sea, I believe, but there is no outlet. There's nowhere for the waters to go. So in the high temperatures over there, what happens is the water evaporates each year, but the salt doesn't go with it, and that stays behind, and it just becomes saltier and saltier. And, uh, and that's a problem, because although it's fun because we can float in it, it means that it's, it's not really uh, a place where life can survive. So the problem is it has no outlet. Because it is stagnant, it is considered dead. And that maybe has something that we can sort of relate to. We need to have that flow so that we don't stagnate, so that we don't become dead Christians. Yes, we of course need to make sure that we have this unquenchable thirst for Jesus. That is so important. But we also need to make sure that we have an outlet, otherwise we are in danger of becoming stagnant Christians. I'd like to um, ask you to stand, if that's okay. I'd like to pray.